Corona, so this afternoon we'll return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. When we experience loving-kindness for anyone, ourselves or others, we naturally want good things for them, things that will make them happy. And the deeper the happiness, the more satisfying the happiness, the better. And so we'll continue on the same thing from yesterday, but we'll extend it, and that is beginning with a loving-kindness directed towards ourselves, but I'd like to give it a special, a special twist. And that is, I'm going to make a wild assumption here that since we're all here for a retreat that was billed as a shamatha retreat, uh, that you're actually interested in shamatha. I'm going to make that big, bold assumption. And being interested in shamatha means not being interested in the word shamatha, but actually the experience of shamatha, which means overcoming the attentional imbalances and really, to more to the point, or more richly, overcoming the five obscurations. Five obscurations, or hindrances, uh, for which shamatha is specifically designed, shamatha, the achievement of the first jhana, and so forth, are specifically designed to make them go dormant. So to overcome those obscurations or, or hindrances, but then also in, in cultivating and eventually achieving shamatha, then realizing through one's own experience what are called the five dhyana factors. So in Tibetan, dipangadang, samdinking and lakna. And so, As we engage in any type of practice, one of the very classic um, methods for arousing interest, inspiration, you know, real strong motivation, uh, is to reflect upon the benefits, the advantages of whatever the practice may be. And so for one of the classic, more discursive remedies for overcoming laxity and lethargy is to reflect upon the benefits of actually achieving shamatha and get, getting inspired. And so I think we probably have all had occasion to rehearse um, the possibility of completely failing at shamatha. <laughs> Spending eight weeks here and finding that you're the, the worst yogi here and you just went around like this, like a, like, a, like a fly in a bottle for eight weeks and it went around and around and around. At the end, you wound up right where you started and, and you probably rehearsed that one. You probably know about that one. Okay, and that's not so encouraging. Um, but what I'm suggesting in the following meditation, as we begin with loving kindness for ourselves and then extend it, is actually to rehearse success, to imagine succeeding, right? And imagine succeeding, and what I'm not suggesting is there's a pot of gold at the end of the shamatha rainbow, and one day if you're really luck lucky and you have the right leprechaun with you, you will find that pot of gold. You know, if you're really lucky and just hope for it and hope for it, one day it'll land on you like a pot of gold. But very, very much to the contrary of that, and here I really love the Tibetan phrasing, uh, if, you are, if you are in practice, and Tibetan pr practitioners, so if Mugi is meditating and I come, Mugi, what are you doing? He might very well say, Oh, nga shine perfectly straightforward way of saying I'm practicing shamatha but what it also means is I'm accomplishing shamatha I'm a com in process I'm accomplishing shamatha and then imagine Mugi, Mugi spends six months nine months and he's and I come in what are you doing? and then two months later what are you doing? and then after nine months go by and I tap on him and he doesn't move And after a while, in his own sweet time, he comes out and I ask him, what, Mugi, what have you been doing? Then he'd say, oh, 
I finished accomplishing shamatha. I was accomplishing, 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 and now I finished accomplishing. I accomplished. Done deal, and now go on to do other things. Vipassana, bodhicitta, what have you. And so in that mood, and I think quite a number of you have now experienced the little shafts of light from, let's say, the substrate consciousness, glimmering through the clouds of excitation and dullness and so forth. And some of you, I know this has happened. I mean, I've been speaking with you now for two weeks. Some of you experiencing a session, maybe multiple sessions, where you really get into a flow and the mind is quiet and you're really seeing what continuity is like. A shaft of non-conceptuality is coming in, where you're maintaining the stability. And as one person mentioned to me just today, it's pretty sweet. It's very soothing. It's nice. Let alone bliss and luminosity and all of that. Just getting into the flow of just a nice continuity. Say, boy, I could really get used to this. And you're getting the shaft. You're getting the shaft of light. You're not getting the shaft. You're getting the shaft of light. Uh, some glimmering, you know, shining through from what is really your own birthright. It's your own birthright. You're not getting it from me. You're not getting it from Buddhism. Right? It's your own birthright. This is your own heritage. Nature of your own mind. Others, I know, of, uh, know, not everybody here, but on others, you're cruising along and lo and behold, bliss comes up. It's happened to a number of you already. Here we are, not even finished quite with second week number two, and bliss coming up. And you know it's not a stimulus-driven bliss. I mean, that can happen too. We get that every, every time we go for dinner, right? But no, this is not a stimulus-driven bliss. It's not something coming from thinking a happy thought. Oh, I really got excited. I got really optimistic. I, had a, I went down memory lane and had a pleasant memory. Not that. You know it's not that. You're getting a real taste of genuine happiness, the bliss that is rising up, percolating up from the substrate, and others have already had an occasion of just extraordinary clarity, vividness, brightness. It's bracing. It really makes you be, feel vividly alive. And so these are coming up, percolating up through, even in relatively early, early phases of shamatha practice, which these are har harbingers, is a good old-fashioned word, harbingers of things to come. And that is, when you get these little breaks in the cloud, consider the clouds just dissipating, and then it's just flowing forth, how do we say, unimpededly. So, this practice then will be a practice of loving-kindness, directed first towards ourselves, then extending, but really focusing on this particular type of well-being. It's not ultimate, we all know that. But the type of well-being that actually arises from within and is not contingent upon hedonic stimuli and the other type of pleasures, one's satisfactions the satisfaction of just knowing that for the time being as long as you maintain this level of balance of nyamsha, the balance of the mind that ill will won't arise ill will just won't arise you know that you're really quite free of it or if it does it just kind of pops up and then just dissipates like there was just you know no, no support for it like, just voted out. Sorry, you're not welcome here. They go, no, I guess I'm not welcome here. And it just slips right away. How pleasant that would be. How very nice that would be. So that's what we'll do. In this practice, we'll be looking at the five aspiring for, freedom from, these five obscurations. That's going to be my preferred translation, even though hindrance is a bit more common. But I think, of course, they're hindrances. But when we say obscurations, it's clear what they do. They obscure. And what do they obscure? Substrate consciousness. They, obs they obscure the innate, the natural bliss and luminosity and non-conceptuality of your own mind when it's in a state of rest. 
It obscures that. And when it obscures that, then of course we feel we have to go out for pleasure. Because you've got nothing inside. So who's going to make me happy? Who's going to make me happy? Because I've got nothing here. So find that person, that job, that place. Create the kids. You know, kids are just designed to make us happy. We know that. And so, you know, so when you feel you have no internal resources and you still want happiness, you're going to go in the one place to look. Everywhere else. So, to cultivate this, this aspiration of loving kindness, to be free of the five obscurations, so that which is already yours manifestly becomes yours, and to realize, to make manifest these five factors of meditative absorption, or five jhana factors. They just come with the turf. They are, it's not only bliss, luminosity, and unconceptuality, but there are these five factors that are just at your beck and call. The ability to coarsely and subtly investigate, to analyze, and so forth, they're, they're just there. It's kind of like buying a property, and this is the furniture that came with the property, right? You move into the substrate, this is what comes with it, okay? So that's going to be this loving-kindness practice. To inspire, to arouse, and to bring some joy and some vision that actually Ho oh, oh. ho, this may all be possible. begin, as always, with an act of loving-kindness. We are here, after all, because we care about ourselves and wish to find greater happiness. And that itself is an expression of loving-kindness. So express this more pointedly now as you let your awareness descend into the body, fill the body, and settle your body in its natural state. Gladly release, relinquish all control over the in and out breath. Observe the flow of sensations correlated with the breath as they arise in the body, but do so passively, disengaging your will and your preferences, your expectations. Relaxing so deeply into the breath, especially the out breath, You simply allow the body to breathe of its own accord, in its own way. And as you relax more, even more deeply, you may have the sense that the body is being breathed, 
rather than the body as an agent doing it. Settle your mind in its natural state, a state of poise, a state of balance, a state of mind that is at the same time deeply relaxed and at ease, as well as vigilant, and sustaining that balance by way of stillness in the present moment without being carried into the past or the future by involuntary thoughts, memories, and fantasies. Now as we move into the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, let's start, if you will, by embracing the working hypothesis that the deepest dimension of our awareness is free, primordially pure, the wellspring of all virtues, and symbolically visualize this as a radiant, incandescent orb of white light at your heart. Here is the very source, the origin of loving-kindness itself. Resting there is your starting point. Envision the accomplishing and the having accomplished of shamatha. the gradual, discerning, highly motivated, 
cultivation of mental balance. By which you gradually cultivate each of the five factors of jhana, of meditative stabilization. Your faculty for inspecting whatever you wish to examine. called course investigation. Sometimes called applied thought. It is that initial discerning investigative engagement with the object that counteracts the obscuration of laxity and dullness. As you breathe out, arouse this yearning of loving-kindness, of deeply caring for yourself and your own well-being, and recognizing what a valuable role the cultivation and refinement of this faculty could play in your life to arouse and refine this discerning careful examining quality of awareness, such you break through the clouds of laxity and dullness. Imagine refining, cultivating, accomplishing this quality of jhana, and imagine overcoming, dispelling, removing the shroud of laxity and dullness. Imagine the clarity, the brightness of your awareness. With each outbreath, arouse this yearning and imagine light flooding forth from your heart, saturating your mind. With this quality of discerning examination and the clarity and brightness that results. Imagine cultivating, accomplishing, refining the second factor 
a precise analogous, careful, meticulous investigation that comes about through sustained thought, sustained investigation, which in turn overcomes, dispels the obscuration of afflictive uncertainty, skepticism, wavering, vacillation. So your mind becomes whole, stable, focused. And arouse the yearning with each in-breath, with each out-breath. May this factor of stabilization, of precise analysis, investigation, arise fully mature and dispel all afflictive and debilitating uncertainty. Breathe out that light of loving-kindness and let it fill your whole being. confidence, replacing uncertainty and vacillation, a kind of strength of mind acquired through discerning, careful investigation. Imagine bliss, bliss that arises from the very wellsprings of your own substrate consciousness and ultimately from the deepest dimension of awareness. Bliss that arises out of the mind as becoming established in such equipoise, being so wondrously healthy and balanced. Bliss that is not contingent upon any external stimuli, no fix, no external support. It is yours, your own birthright, an innate quality of your own substrate consciousness. And it dispels the obscuration of ill will, of malice. Ill will and, have, Ill will and malice have no chance when facing the brightness of bliss. They fade out immediately. Arouse this yearning, a 
loving kindness for yourself. May you experience this bliss, this rapture of samadhi. A type of bliss, the Buddha said, of this bliss do not be afraid. There's nothing to fear here. With each out-breath, imagine filling your entire being with the light of such bliss that vanquishes ill will. This has a sharp edge to it, this bliss or rapture. But there's another quality of jhana. You may simply call genuine happiness or well-being, more diffuse and overall generalized sense of well-being. And this vanquishes the obscurations of excitation, of anxiety and worry, of guilt. With each out-breath arouse this aspiration. May you experience such genuine well-being and overcome the imbalances and obscurations of excitation, anxiety, guilt. May you be truly well. There's a serenity in this well-being that comes from a mind that is profoundly calm, the turmoil of excitation having been subdued. Finally envision the fifth of these five factors of jhana, the single-pointedness of the mind, 
the unification, the coalescence, the collectedness, cohesion of your mind. It is whole, it is sane. Radical sanity. Wherever you direct your attention, it is whole, collected, focused. And it is this factor of jhana that overcomes, vanquishes. The craving for all of the bounties of this desire realm, of sensual pleasures and all of the other more abstract and intangible, as well as tangible pleasures, that arouse craving and attachment. This profound sanity releases us from those. Arouse the yearning, if you will, to experience such radical wholeness, unification of the mind, and overcome not the enjoyment of the world, but the craving and attachment for these, for these hedonic pleasures. Imagine that your mind has been so transformed and freed, and now it awaits at your beck and call to be used as you wish to be applied to the most meaningful endeavors that you can imagine. You're now ready, well prepared to set out on the great expedition to realize your deepest potential beyond the substrate, to primordial consciousness, the innate mind of clear light, to realize your own Buddha nature. Now as you breathe out with every out-breath, extend the field of loving-kindness to embrace everyone here, to some extent we all came with something of a common vision, an interest in shamatha, a wish to cultivate a focused mind, an open heart, 
called the Veta Four Immeasurables. All came with a wish to be better people, to achieve exceptional mental balance and beyond with each out-breath. Breathe out the aspiration, may each one here find what they've come for. Realize their aspirations. May each one be truly well and happy and breathe out this light of loving-kindness. Then extend the field of your awareness beyond these artificial boundaries of the walls of this building. And embrace in this field all of these sentient beings, human and non-human alike, here in this valley. Each one in his or her own way, looking for happiness, looking for security, wishing to be free of pain and suffering. With each out-breath, arouse the yearning, may each one, like ourselves, find the happiness that they seek. May each one be safe, free of danger. May each one be well and happy. With each out-breath, expand the field of your awareness out into all directions, excluding no one. Release all appearances and all objects of mind,
release all aspirations and for a moment let your awareness rest in its own innate luminosity. Let's bring the session to a close. Maybe just a short footnote about the shamatha itself, something maybe, I think, not insignificant. Those of you, pretty much everybody, I guess, uh, who has attended the one-week retreat, introductory retreat, or at least listened to the CDs, then you've heard me discuss the distinction between the achievement of shamatha, which is equivalent in our usage here, the achievement of shamatha, equivalent to access to the first jhana, or samdhindambhanyado. So access to the first jhana, as opposed to the full achievement of the first jhana, or samdhindambhanyamuji. Uh, there's a distinction between the two. The very broad consensus in the Tibetan tradition, I haven't seen anybody disagree with this, is that if you're looking for what is sufficient in terms of a samadhi basis, for being able to derive the full benefit of vipassana and then everything else, then the access to the first jhana is sufficient. It's sufficient. If you'd like to go more, that's fine. But if you're looking to just do what's necessary so that you can move on to the, the main show, the vipassana, the bodhicitta, on into state regeneration completion, on into texture and tutkel, then the access to the first jhana is sufficient. And in manual after manual, teaching after teaching that I've received, they really go right there. And then they say, okay, and now we're gone. They, they don't linger and say, okay, now, now let's achieve. You know, in the practice manuals, in the, how do you say, the more scholarly treatises, or sh then you have whole treatises on all of the four jhanas, the four samapati, or sure, of course. But when you get to the practice manuals, what the yogis take into the cave with them, then it's pretty much shamatha and then get on to the really important stuff. Uh, but what's the distinction? Well, one is just flat-out duration. How stable is your mind? That is, in both of them, your samadhi is quite effortless. As you slip in, it just it flows effortlessly. But if you've achieved access to the first jhana, the yogi's report over many, many centuries is minimum 
slipping into the, into the stream of shamatha, minimum four hours, which is no problem. Could, could easily be longer than that, but four hours minimum of just this impeccable samadhi, flawless samadhi, not even subtle laxity, not even subtle excitation, smooth, slick, four hours easy. For the great yogis, and I'm refer to, referring now especially to the most authoritative commentary in the whole Theravada tradition, the Fasudi Maga, there's nothing quite to match its majesty and the authority, because it's not just one man. It, it, it's more like me in, in one little tiny way. I'm not here speaking now out of my experience and my great new insights and my Alan Wallace new school of Buddhism. As you well know, that's absolutely not what's happening here. I'm doing my best to convey without distortion, without getting muddled. Uh, generations and generations of wisdom from multiple sources. That's my job. The nozzle and the, on the end of the hose. So you know that. In a way, Buddha Gosa, in a far, far more magisterial way than I, because his, his erudition was absolutely staggering, um, but he too really synthesized centuries and centuries of yogis' reports of what was it like on the front lines. And that was his job, to compile it, to systematize it in, in this path of purification. When he discussed not based simply on his own experience, but generations of yogis during really something of the golden era of this Buddhist tradition, uh, specifically of the Theravada tradition. What the yogis reported, that, and he synthesized this out or drew it out, is if you've achieved the actual state of the first jhana, okay, full-fledged, you're immersed in it, then you slip into samadhi 24 hours easy. As Buddha Gosa says, you can slip into seamless, that is, unbroken session of samadhi for 24 hours, remain there like a strong man who can remain standing, remain standing for 24 hours at a stretch. Okay? So 24 hours. So there's a lot of popularization. As there's popularization of vipassana, there's also popularization of jhana. People saying, oh, achieve jhana in a weekend, achieve jhana in a month, and so forth. My, my only counsel would be, don't accept any wooden nickels. It's an Americanism. But there are a lot of false, false facsimiles out there. Uh, deflation of terms where what used to be mean this now means this. Okay? So this is the authentic. It's not Alan Wallace's authority saying this. It's not even Buddha Gosa's authority saying this. It's generations of yogis saying this. This is the real Mokoi and the Tibetan tradition where they're really focusing on access to the first jhana. This is 1,200 years of experience. So if we're going to use these terms, I suggest we use them well because they actually mean something. It's not just make it up as you go. But that's just sheer duration. You can say, well, why, do I, why would I really want to spend 24 hours in one session? Four could be enough. I might want to get a drink of water or something. You know? And so it's not just duration. That's frankly not that big a deal. It happens to be true. But, well, let's, let's speak more about content, significance. What's the difference between access and full? And once again, I'm speaking now from the Theravada tradition. What, what, what is stated here is that in terms of the, how do you say, I don't like the word suppression, but the going dormant. Suppression sounds like you have to push it down and push it down. Whereas if a bear hibernates, you don't have to push it down, push it down. It's just sleeping, right? It's out for the count, right? And so if you've achieved access to the first jhana, your five obscurations have gone dormant, have gone dormant like a bear hibernating. So that's, I think, it's a better word than suppressing. Of course, they're not eradicated, but they're not keep on being suppressed either. They're just sleepy. They've They've, taken a, they've gone hibernating. So I've learned about hibernating bears. Actually, I want to make sure that the analogy is good, and it's really pretty good. If you come to a hibernating bear, 
I would not suggest this, but as a thought experiment, you come to a hibernating grizzly bear, okay? And you get a nice sharp stick, and you go poke it. Say, gotcha, grizzly bear, gotcha, I can poke you. Um, it will wake up. Even hibernating grizzly bears don't like to be poked with a sharp stick. And the grizzly bear will probably let you know about it in a very grizzly fashion. Right? So even hibernating bears can be woken up with a sharp stick. Likewise, even hibernating obscurations of the five types, there they were, malice and sensual craving and so forth, can they possibly arise if there's a strong catalyst in the world, as in between sessions. They're not, they're not going to arise when you're just sitting in, in samadhi, but in between sessions, when you're engaging with this world, which is filled with all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances, is it possible that some circumstance could act like a sharp stick and jab your hibernating obscurations, such that some ill will might arise, some sensual craving arise, uncertainty, laxity, excitation in between sessions? The answer is yes, it could. Yes, it could. So you're not completely free of them, but overall they are hibernating unless some big stimulus comes. Oh, I think it was Tsongkhaba that said that in between sessions, one of the marvelous trait effects, the lingering effects, the jetop, jetop ginekabla, uh, in between sessions, is that although of course you're not free of mental afflictions, but when do mental afflictions do arise? Number one, they arise infrequently, and when they do arise, they have very little staying power. It's very hard for them to really get a hold, to get you in their grip, because your mind is just too balanced. Your mind is just too balanced for that. So they can arise, but they're going to lose, right? So that happens, that freedom, that relative freedom, or the hibernation of these five obscurations, that occurs if you achieve access to the first jhana. And of course it occurs if you achieve the actual state of the first jhana. And then we have these five jhana factors. So we have coarse investigation, applied thought. We have subtle analysis, sustained thought. We have bliss, we have well-being, we have single-pointedness of the mind, semzijipa. Those are, the, those are the, on the plus side of the ledger. These are the positive attributes that go along with, that are really the factors or qualities of the first jhana. What is said in the Theravada tradition is that in terms of the dormancy, or the hibernation of the five obscurations, they're equally hibernating in access as they are in full jhana, in between sessions. In other words, pretty much the same. But in terms of these five positive attributes, they're more robust. They're more, more robust, more stable. They just got more meat on them. They're stronger in the full achievement of jhana as opposed to just access. They're still there, but they're more robust, more durable. Okay? So that's the distinct difference. But the whole Tibetan tradition says, well, still, access is sufficient. Okay? So there's a little thumbnail sketch, combining our practice of shamatha with loving kindness. Okay? <laughs>